More and more, we are realizing the true power community has to lift up the human race in so many ways. We started this show to put the spotlight on community organizations, to highlight their contributions, and to share insights on the importance of community. Every week, tune in as our host, Stu Starkey, helps raise awareness around one of the most important aspects in all of our lives. Welcome to the community of Big Hearts. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the community of Big Hearts. This week, we are here with Ginny Becker from Child Advocacy Center, Kelowna. Um, I am looking forward to having this conversation with Ginny. Um, they're an organization, when I was doing my reading research um, on them, I just realized how important this conversation is to have. I want to let the listeners know that some of the things we may talk about may be heavy. And um, so, you know, it's important for, uh, for us to have this conversation. Some of you may be too much on some of the impact stories, um, but those that can handle it, we're really hoping the goal of this is to spread the great word that uh, Jeannie's organization is doing. Jeannie, how are you? I'm well, thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to take this journey with you. The pleasure is mine. Um, can you tell us a lot more uh, than I than I went into there about what Child Advocacy Center does? Yeah, so I always start uh, answering that question by you know really contextualizing that we we didn't pioneer the model of child advocacy. Um, child advocacy centers go back to 1985. The first one was built in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, basically, uh, when a district attorney decided there had to be a better way to serve and support children who've been impacted by abuse. Um, and since then, the model has been evolving across the globe. Uh, today, there's more than 40 CACs operating in Canada. Um, there are eight currently operating in the province of BC. Um, I think within the next five years, there'll be closer to 13 in the province of British Columbia. And ultimately, what these centers exist to do is coordinate all of the services that children and their non-offending and supportive family members need uh, following the disclosure of abuse uh, or neglect. And so the best way to understand that is to understand what happens in the absence of a child advocacy center. So when a report of child abuse is made, traditionally it triggers a really complicated, geographically siloed uh, network of responses. So there's all these agencies that participate in the criminal justice process and the protection process and support and but they're all sort of disjointed. And, and, you know, unfortunately, what that results in is a whole bunch of system-induced trauma that follows the trauma of abuse. And it really, it's part of what contributes to low disclosure rates. It's part of what um, creates the long-term challenges when, you know, when people have experienced trauma like this without the right supports early on, it leads to a host of complicated, um, unfortunate circumstances down the road. So by taking all of those agencies and putting them under one roof that was literally built for children, um, you create an entirely different environment of care, uh, which is based on you know, parallel investigations of agencies working together. And instead of these families meeting the needs of the agencies to do their work, these agencies are, are really compelled to meet the needs of children. So kids are maintained at the center of everything that we do here. It, it, the question, every day it comes back to, is this what's best for the child? Um, 
and so it's a really big mind shift in the way uh, that we go about child protection. It's complicated, but it is um, critically important that we do better. And that's where this center came from was, you know, you know, um, community members back in as far as 2014 asking the question, can we do better and collectively agreeing that we not only could, but needed to. I'm surprised that it, it's so recent that an organization like yourself was, was hitting the city of Kelowna and the first one only being founded back in 85. I imagine these kind of things, um, unfortunately have been happening for a long time. One, one of the things yeah. that when I was, sorry, just, uh, this one thing that's, um, I just recall when I was doing the, the research and, and listened to one of your videos um, on your organization was that how tough this conversation is to have about child abuse. And when I yeah, read it, you know, I, have- I think, I, I think for us, that's one of the biggest goals that we have is to really take the lid off this conversation a little bit. Um, you know, if you look at what's happened over the last, I would say five to seven years in the conversation around mental health, we have, we have managed to embark on a really powerful journey that is lowering stigmas, encouraging people to find support and help. And that's happening because we're talking about it and we're having a dialogue. And, you know, when you, you see this sort of flurries of social attention and things that come around now, you know, it's time that we, to be fair, it should always feel uncomfortable to talk about child abuse. Uh, It's a horrible thing to have to talk about, but we have to take the lid off the conversation because this is, this happens everywhere. Uh, Child abuse is not defined by, you know, um, economic status or geographical location, or, you know, it doesn't discern this lives everywhere. It lives here. uh, And we have to, it doesn't go away if we don't start talking about it, identifying it, knowing what we can do as citizens to, to watch for it. And what is our job when we suspect it? Like there's so many things that need to be done um, to change this story. And that's what the CAC hopes to be a part of leading is that conversation. Yeah, I, I lived that experience when I was prepping for this. I realized that, okay, we're we're going to be having some dark conversations here, like it, it looks like. And okay, so maybe I just kind of skirt those tough conversations. You know, I, I don't know if that's the right thing to be doing. And then after doing more research and listening to your, your video and, and, and education on there, I realized, no, the point is, unfortunately, to have the conversation so people are more aware of this, so we can have more centers like yours, um, creating impact, helping those that have significant trauma that leads to um, these other things in their lives that we can hopefully prevent or minimize. Entirely. And, you know, and again, and as I say, it, it should be hard to talk about that. That should never go away. I think if we desensitize ourselves to talking about the, the horror that is child abuse, then we're not on the right path. Um, but we have to, we have to have the conversation to get better at, as a community, supporting uh, the victims of these crimes and, and how we change that trajectory. You know, we, my team here, you know, we opened January 1st, 2020. Um, Our first child interview was on January 29th. Six weeks later, uh, global pandemic landed in our lap, uh, which as a startup, 
uh, and a not-for-profit became the most complicated year in history to be a startup not-for-profit without question. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a really complicated journey when you're launching an agency of this magnitude. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is COVID also shone a really alarming light on this issue. COVID became the perfect storm for uh, child maltreatment, you know, where you have kids where home is not their safe place and then they're isolated there um, for weeks on end. You know, there, there is a, it, it really, really validated um, our need to be here in, in the first weeks of knowing what it was as a new agency and you're, you know, the calls are coming in and, and it became rapidly evident how necessary the center is. Um, and, you know, it just, it was always necessary, but something about COVID six weeks later uh, was a really troubling validation of our, of our why for sure. Yeah. And it, just to kind of put a bow on, on this topic of having this tough conversation, I, I imagine as this conversation becomes um, more recognized, then comes funding, then comes support. If we're not talking about it, it's in the shadows, as you guys say, and, and I believe, then it's, um, it just doesn't get the full support of the communities or maybe even government. Entirely. Yeah. The very good point. You know, the funding models for child advocacy centers across the country vary. Um, ours at this point is an entirely funded through not-for-profit and fun for fundraising. So we're a, a charitable entity. Um, we don't yet have core funding in the province of BC for child advocacy centers. Um, it's absolutely where we need to get to. Uh, other provinces have achieved that. Um, it's a bit newer here in, in BC and we're still growing, but also the strength of our network. So the network of CACs in the province work together collaboratively. We are an aligned group. We work together to create common reporting. Um, the, our statistics will be measured as a group over time, which is, you know, it's really big, complicated work to get there, but it, it really is extraordinary work and the impact that we're having can't be denied. So, you know, in the meantime, hundred percent, we need the community support and our community has been extraordinary. The center was entirely built by the community. Um, but, you know, now that we're operational, it's, it's keeping that lens of, why we're here, you know. So on day one, we had two people up here. Now we have more than 23 professionals that collaborate in the center. Um, wow. And, you know, it's going to keep growing. Just, at, you know, I know we talked earlier a little bit about numbers. Last year on March 1st, we had interviewed six children. And again, you know, we were taking baby steps in. We're brand new. We have to figure out the operational infrastructure and all of that as we went. Um, on March 1st of this year, we had already interviewed 24 children. Um, so, you know, it's easy to see even with just microcosm numbers like that, um, how, how important this is and, and how relevant it is to, you know, to the community. And, um, you know, we see kids every week here uh, that are living through things that most of us don't want to have to imagine um, and how we can support those kids and help them build a journey uh, to recovery is, it's critical. And, you know, I think one of the misconceptions about CACs too is that it's just, it's about investigating child abuse. hundred percent, we are about investigating child abuse. So we have MPs, so there's a four member child abuse unit that this is their home. They're here every Monday through Friday. This is where they work from and all of those investigations are done through here. 
but we're about more than that. This is also about how do we wrap services around families and concentrate on children's physical well-being and their mental health and the support network that is their family. You know, so we have we add a role into child protection called the child and family advocate. Uh, so our child and family advocate here is works for the child advocacy center, so doesn't report to any of those agencies, and her job is to behave as the bird's eye view of that child and that child's needs and to ensure that the moving parts of all those agencies don't, um, that the gaps between don't open up. You know, it's really about filling the gaps and making sure that someone's got their eyes on the big picture of what this family needs and keeping the child really at the center of the conversation. So it's a net new role in the community and it makes a critical difference to how families feel supported, which is, um, pretty heartwarming. You know, people ask me every day, how do you do this work? It's, you know, I think the answer is actually pretty easy because we know with a hundred percent conviction that every one of the children that have walked through the doors here have been served better um, than they would have been, you know, a year and a half ago before this existed and before we were, this team was here and aligned to this purpose. It, it's fundamentally changing how, um, how families feel. And I could give you dozens of stories, um, of the little ones that come here and the, their reaction to the space and to the team that's here for them. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty profound. Yeah. We're going to get into those uh, shortly. Um, would you mind going over some of the programs that you guys do have that supports the, the, ch the children through their journey of. Sure. Help? So, you know, this is, I love this question and I'm going to, take a, a sidestep for one second. It's part of the answer, but one of the things that charities struggle with, and I, so I'm, I'm all about the, have the real conversation. But one of the things charities really struggle with is, is, is that fundraising that supports the existence, the space that you operate out of and the lights being on and the team that operates it. And the one thing that I have always talked to our donors about is we very unabashedly have to raise money to ensure that this physical space exists. It is literally the building and the environment that is full of soft edges and warm corners and child-friendly and child-centric elements that facilitates this change. If this space were not here, these agencies would all go back to their corners and do the best that they can. Um, but it's not the same as having them in one building where kids aren't being bumped around the community looking and trying to self-navigate for services. This is all about this space. So, you know, that's one of the things that we're very upfront about is, yeah, we, we need support to make sure that we can be here, that this space can be here, um, and that it can be dedicated to the singular purpose of children who've been impacted by violence and neglect. So that's number one is, you know, for sure, the support that we require is about creating a safe place that give, makes sure kids feel heard and believed and important. Um, outside of that, the core program areas are the Child and Family Advocacy Program. So that's the program of support, ensuring that every child has that navigator, that bird's eye view, dedicated liaison, whose job is really, again, to, it's sort of twofold. It's to keep that eye on the child and family and, and help navigate the way the work is done. But it's also to coordinate the agencies. So pulling together what we call case conferences when, when moving parts are happening around files and what who needs to know what and who's communicating with the family. So that's one of our sort of core programming areas of ensuring that we have that. And that, you know, that's a position that has to be filled by a masters of social work. And, you know, these are not 
um, simple roles. They're, they're highly professional, highly skilled individuals that have to deliver these services. Then we also have uh, what we could have just recently evolved to be called our Resilient Families Program, which is it's an early uh, startup program right now, uh, but it's essentially the mental health program. So, you know, there's amazing agencies in this town doing brilliant work in mental health, but there are definitely gaps uh, for our youngest children and particularly those uh, impacted by abuse. So um, we partner with a number of agencies. So, you know, we have police ministry, Central Okanagan Elizabeth Fry, who we partner with on some of the counseling services and victim services. So they're specialized in some of those pieces. Um, even with that, there's gaps. So we had to have our own um, crisis management and trauma-informed response on site to make sure that when families come in those initial phase of the, the sort of crisis that is the disclosure um, and what follows that, that we have the ability to respond to make sure families are safe when they leave here. So that's our Resilient Families program, uh, which we, you know, the coordinator for that program on site also masters of social work, someone who's really building our mental health program from the ground up, um, which is amazing that we can have that. The multidisciplinary program is the collaborative response of the agencies. So that's the oversight of the agencies. And then we also have a, um, a really unique program now um, that is our emergency services response program, which actually came about um, and when you talk about the tough conversations, this is going to be one of them. Um, about a year, not quite, I want to say it was about eight months ago, I got a call from um, one of our on-site team members, and they had a 13-year-old uh, sexual abuse victim who had been um, assaulted in her own bed on a number of occasions. And the family wanted to um, ensure that she could have a new bed, which you don't have to spend more than a second thinking about why that's crucial to recovery and to that use ability to um, move past that trauma. And there are some agencies that can help, but this was a unique circumstance and we weren't able to find uh, uh, an immediate response to this. And personally, I couldn't shake it. I, you know, so we started making calls to some of our donors and right away found some funding to go buy a bed. But the question I asked at the time was, how often does this happen? And it happens a lot. And so, you know, we needed to respond and wanted to make sure that for the children victims that we're serving here, that we wouldn't have to wait the next time that we would have an answer and we would have a response. So we ended up coming up with a bit of a reserve fund. So it's a restricted fund that essentially holds funding that allows us to do things like that. Um, since then, we've bought a few beds now, um, crib linens, things like that, where unfortunately, sometimes, you know, in the course of investigation, things are taken from families, you know, um, bedding, pajamas, things like that, where they'll be taken and the and children, won't, the families won't get these things back. And we, I just had one of the police say to me the other day, you know, we, in the past, we don't really have the chance to feel about that. It's our job. We have to take those things. They'll never probably get them back. They go into evidence for years. And instead, you know, we had just a few weeks ago, police came down to talk to the advocate and said, you know, we need, we need to do something here. Is there anything we can do? It was bedding and linens again. Um, and now we're able to, now we're able to make sure that that doesn't have to be part of the trauma that we can respond. Um, that fund also funds emergency bridge counseling when they're on the wait list for a funded counseling program. But we can't, we can't get, you know, there's a wait list for those funded programs sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Um, so now we can fund bridge counseling or 
um, help a caregiver come into the community to support a family who's going through something. So that's a really uh, close to my heart program because we have seen, you know, these little bits that add to that trauma are so devastating when you're living this kind of experience. And the, the more um, we can support families through some of those things, the, the more tangible the care model becomes. So, so that's sort of the, the core programming of our area of our piece. And then the other big um, program area that we start to evolve into is the education prevention piece. So we're doing early work in that. It is a huge part of the role of a child advocacy center is to uh, build awareness, um, educate and communicate with community to improve all of that. So that's it. That'll be a really big part of our work as time goes by as well. Ginny, I, I love that. Um, it seems like even though you guys are um, a chain of 40 uh, organizations that I assume share and work together to develop programming, that you're still able to identify a problem within your network and create a solution um, that seems to be like unique. The betting problem, how uh, that's a really tough story to hear and how simple the solution is given how much funding goes into um, helping so many organizations, just a, a simple bed, child bed exchange. Um, really cool for an organization as big as you guys are to be able to add programs on the fly. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, and it's interesting, and I should clarify, you know, so the 40 centers in the country, we are all independent of one another, but we core, we work together as a network, and, and by that I mean we we share ideas, best practices, and, you know, um, the sort of gold standard of service, the ideology, so we all serve the same function, um, but we're all funded differently, we all, you know, we're all unique to our communities, for sure, um, we work very closely, you know, um, so I sit on the provincial steering committee for child advocacy centers and also sit on the on the national network um, and it's amazing because it is a really collaborative group but we are all in our own communities responding um, to our community's needs and and you know we we have for sure under over our first year of operations even our eyes have been open to what the need is here and and I think that will continue to happen as we grow and and our programming grows and evolves with it um, our goal is to be agile and responsive and and really focused on avoiding redundancy of service that's where the partnerships come in and working with organizations that do what they do so well that you know efry and um you know the the bigger agencies there's there's great work being done um part of our critical role within that is the coordination of it and to ensure that um there's the, the gaps in between are where the where the where the, the hard part is and it's really about closing those gaps it's, it's a great example, though, of um, when you compare government that's fairly rigid in their program delivery um, and consistent funding through their government-related organizations to a um, community-funded charity that helps mm -hmm. to fill the gaps. Like, they're just so needed in our communities. And I've been so fortunate to have um, many conversations now over the podcast, meeting people like yourself, organizations like you run that fill these really important gaps and in inflexible systems that we have. So mm -hmm. I just, when I hear stories like that, it's obviously a tough story to hear, but it's heartwarming to know that you guys are there. 
Yeah, and you know, I really think that, you know, child advocacy centers are the breeding ground of, of what people are talking about, about wanting these large agencies to work collaboratively, to work together, to, you know, share the information that they can. You can't share all the information, but you can certainly, uh, in the best interests of children, work together and um, just do better. You know, I think, I think it was a Helen Keller quote that says, you know, we can do so much more together than we can alone. That's not an exact quote, but you know, it resonates for me because I think that's what this is. This is about agencies that do the best that they can, but are also willing and able to recognize that we can do better together. And that's the goal. Speaking about sharing information, can you share some stats with us on um, impact on, on what's happening in your community and, and, and either uh, the impact you've had so far or the impact you're planning on having? Sure. You know, I think the, the first number people need to hear, because it's, it's a hard one. And every time we share this statistic, people go, that can't be, that can't be right. You know, we're, we're always met with disbelief. But in Canada, the statistics around um, experiencing abuse in childhood is one in five. In BC, it's one in three. Mm. Um, one in three adults report some exposure to extreme abuse in their childhood. It's a, it's a massive number. Um, so I, I think that's an important thing for people to understand. It's a number we come back to a lot because, you know, the, we're, whether it's touched your life to your knowledge or not, um, you know, when you drive down the street and you drive past a park and you see a group of kids playing, the statistics say that, you know, you're, you're looking at a group that includes a child who's living through this type of trauma. Um, and I think it's really important for people to to see the lens for what it is. This is something that it remains behind closed doors and, and we need to understand that it's there. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it isn't. Um, this center, you know, this is a large center. Uh, we have a, a large geographic region. This center serves the, um, from an investigative perspective, uh, the areas of Lake Country, Kelowna, West Kelowna and Peachland. Um, in our first year, we interviewed um, 101 kids with an impact of about 260 individuals because our job is not just the child, but also the siblings, um, the caregivers. There's so much trauma in being a sibling who knew and didn't tell or who heard and is af afraid. There's there's so much trauma there. So that's really our job is the whole network. Um, we delivered over a thousand service activations in the first year. And again, we were just getting started. So this year, as I said already, you know, we've, if you, if you can use the numbers to March, we've, you know, our impact has gone up times four. Um, so, you know, I think it will only grow as we expand services and we're able to serve more and more children. But, you know, I, over time, it was originally predicted that we would investigate um, roughly 50 cases per month when we were at full capacity, which we're not there yet. But when we are, um, that's the was the early projection. And I think it's one of the things too, it's really hard to come up with that. What is that number? Because prior to now, there's no way to collate the information between ministry investigations, police investigations, emergency room visits, that data doesn't intersect. Um, now it does uh, through us. So now we can start to tell meaningful stories about um, 
how this works together and where all that impact lies, but there's no baseline for it because it's four detachments and an emergency room and ministry that's like, it's so broad spread. There's not, there isn't a great, there never was a great way to predict um, how, how busy we would become. Um, so we'll learn as we go. Uh, when you told me that stat about how many kids, uh, one in five, one in three, that floored me. You're preparing me for a pretty astonishing number, but um, that took my breath away. How do we um, how do we help impact that? What, what what are we doing as a country, government, communities? Um, I, I did want to hear more stories, but I, I just I can't not ask that question now. You know, I think it's a great question, and I would say one of the best things we're doing is getting behind child advocacy centers um, because child advocacy centers in the communities where they're longest standing have proven to increase disclosure rates. They reduce the turnover on the front lines, you know, the longer we can keep it healthy. You know, I work, I work here to support the team that supports children. The people that work in this building are my superheroes. Um, the fact that they can, you know, the job is to, to get a child to tell you a story that nobody wants to hear. Uh, that's, that's hard work. Um, the longer we can keep it healthy for them to be on the front line, the more experience they gain and the more our children benefit from that experience and their ability to build trust bonds with these kids and, and create a different outcome. And I think, you know, child advocacy centers are, are a huge part of the answer for this, of how we get better as communities at doing this. The more supportive we can be of these environments, um, the more we hold agencies accountable to this kind of change. I think that's the other thing is, you know, this is where, um, this is where it comes from. And, you know, this center really got its start from superintendent of police saying, we need to do this. You know, this, there's an opportunity to do better. And our new superintendent is incredibly aligned to that vision. And I think, you know, that's the path we have to go down. And then it's on us to help starting to educate and make people aware and working better with our schools. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot of opportunity to, um, to support the professionals that are out there that have the best shot at identifying where there's risk and where there's kids that are in trouble um, and how we work with them to, to identify that and, and create the right supports. Thank you. There's also important work and this is a part a lot of people never want to get into, but there is important work coming out of the federal government on work with vendors. Um, if we don't create programming to identify and work with offenders to change those behaviors, then we're not, we're only solving part of the problem. So that's not the role of child advocacy centers. Child advocacy centers don't, you know, our goal is to never have an offender on site. We are here for children, but I do think it's part of the conversation that that work has to be done. You know, there's, there's, um, and I hope that we can rely on the, on the federal government to continue down that path to create um, programming that starts to create a change. Do you know how Canada does compared to other countries um, like ours, America, Europe? You know, I don't have that stat off the top of my head, but there's a there's a group called uh, Children's First um, out of Ontario that that has some of those numbers coming out now that talks about, I want to say Canada came up as listed something like 26th um, in the world of, of best places to live as a child. Like it, it was an alarmingly low rating. So I think there's things to to dig into on that for sure. But I would say if people are interested in that, I would check out Children's First. That's a great place to get some of those sort of more global comparative statistics. I think that's what they're really delving into. Um, 
but yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have that off the top of my head. Oh, thank you. Well, let's, um, let's dive into those impact stories. We'd love to hear the impact that uh, child advocacy centers having in its early infancy, it's, it's a year and a half of operations. Yeah. You know, these, it's hard. It, as I, our, our work is so sensitive and um, there's so many privacy concerns that one of the challenging things, you know, when you're in charities, not for profit, the most powerful tool you have is the stories that you can tell. And we're somewhat limited in the stories that we can tell because our job is to protect um, the children that we serve. But certainly with time, we've been able to start now telling, uh, you know, sort of high bird's eye view versions of some of the stories of impact that we've had. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is the, the common theme. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One of a sort of system change that we're impacting and and just some stories of, of um, impact for clients, but also for the people that work here, I think is so important. But the one, one of the ones that stands out the most to me is uh, we had a, a little girl coming in. She was under nine. Um, I, we always try to filter out specific ages um, on stories, but she was under nine. Um, she was terrified of the police. And prior to kids, kids coming here, um, typically there's a, a caregiver interview over the phone, just brief to determine um, just some things like they'll ask things like what's their favorite color and, you know, just things to help build a trust bond. So they'll have a few pieces of information to help with those first uh, few seconds with the child. And so what was discovered in that call in this particular instance was this child was very fearful of police. Um, for all the reasons you can imagine, police have been in their home in the middle of the night and probably taken people away. And, you know, so a real, um, real intrinsic fear of police, which is hard. So our team had gathered early, um, the day prior to the interview to really brainstorm how are we going to create a feeling of comfort for this home, even though the center is built for it, knowing there was such an acute fear. Um, everyone was working really hard and trying to, you know, figure out other ways. What are we going to do? Where will everybody be? What's the best path? Um, and it was so interesting because the only thing we didn't prepare for is the minute that little one walked through the door, she was completely at ease. Um, and again, you'd have to see our lobby to fully understand it, but it doesn't look like what she was probably expecting um you know there's stuffed elephants and teddy bears and bright skylights and beautiful colors of paint and art everywhere um and right away when the police came out you know police officer got our our officers are all plain clothes children never see uniforms here um got down on one knee introduced herself showed the little one her badge and there wasn't a hesitation she immediately responded um happily followed the the police officer off to interview and, you know, later when I spoke to the police officer about it, I just said, you know, what do you think would have happened if it weren't for this space? And she says, I don't have to think about it. I can tell you that I, it would have taken at least three interviews, likely three meetings to gain any sense of trust. If she had had to walk past the fences and the police cars and the uniforms and all the things that scare her, I don't think we would have got the, we would never have gotten the statement. We would never have achieved what we did today. And I think that's when we come back to that conversation about it's about the space, it's about this environment. Um, that's what we're getting at is, you know, that district attorney back in 1985, that was the question he was asking is if a child is to be brave enough to tell a story like this, then should we not do better to create the environment that helps them feel safe enough to do so? And that's what this has been is, you know, a, a place where kids can come and feel safe. And one of the other really amazing impacts is 
the impact it has on the front line, on the social workers and the police who, you know, historically, they're there on the worst day of these children's lives, the day that they have to tell this story. And these stories are riddled with fear and shame and um, fear of losing family. There's so much going on there. Um, now, that child might be coming back here in two weeks for a counseling appointment and the police officer can pop out and say hi. And what we're doing there without anybody really knowing is building a really fundamentally different relationship with law enforcement. You know, the, the police become their allies and, and they're able to have a better sense of understanding of that role and, and feel, a, a tr you know, build trust. And that's huge for some of these kids. And when you think about the alternative, um, where that leads is, you know, it's, that's hard. And then one of the other really big things, and this is, you know, a more um, sort of practical outcome, but I, I hope your listeners will understand the significance of it is, you know, on site here, we have three interview rooms uh, side by side. They're beautiful. They look like living rooms. They're all recorded. So, you know, they serve the function that they're meant to, but they're, they don't look like a room you would picture at the police station or wherever for these interviews. And so when the kids come in, in the past, just based on the way detachment is built, uh, that police station, sorry, I'm using internal language, but um, you could only ever interview one child at a time. Just that's because there's one room. Um, now, over the last six months, we've, our team has really become experts at doing simultaneous interviewing, whether it's siblings or multi-victim situations. And there's so much value in that. Um, for police, instead of interviewing for six hours, they're interviewing for two. Um, for families, instead of a caregiver sitting and trying to entertain one child while the other one's in interview and the anxiety that's, that's riddling them in those moments, um, none of that anymore. Now they come, children go to interview. And, you know, we had one not long ago where um, big sister went in first and then the little, the little one followed and the police were able to say, just so you know, your big sister's right there. And the visible courage that grew in that child, just knowing that the sibling was close by in a room that looked kind of the same and having a similar conversation was why we're here. It's, you know, it's everything. It's, it's about doing this in a way that makes sense for kids instead of makes sense for us. Um, but also protecting the integrity of that interview, should it go to through the criminal justice process, you know, it's twofold, but it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and it was interesting because when we first came in, no one, no one had done simultaneous interviewing it. We didn't have the capacity. And now, you know, sort of six, eight months later, the team wouldn't do it any other way because it's better for families. It's the right path. So, you know, there's, there's all kinds of um, reasons why this is better. It's better for the front line. It's better for children. It's better for their families. Um, there's still a long journey in front of us. You know, we're, we're, we'll be learning and evolving and, and expanding programming for years. And in fact, the CEO at a center out of Calgary once said to me, the minute you stop asking if you can do better in this work, it's time to move on. That, you know, we, we will never be good enough um, at supporting kids, but we can certainly put our best foot forward every day and keep, you know, working towards that mission. And I think that's really incredibly true. You know, I won't be satisfied till children don't have to go sit in courtrooms anymore. I think they should testify from here. And there's just all kinds of opportunity to to keep doing better. And we have so much support, you know, even from Crown and police and ministry, everybody believes in this. So I think we'll see nothing but good change continue to come from the center. Jeannie, yeah, there, there's so much there that I, I, I want to respond to, but you're on uh, 
like those stories were, were amazing to paint the picture of what your organization does. But what I didn't realize until I heard more of the stories is what your facility facilitates um, and how much good that comes out of just how thoughtfully it was organized um, in, in doing the research and reading. I, I was thinking, because I, I saw so many references to the facility and to what happens in there, um, and, and now I get it. And, and I also, mm. like, I think we've all had those moments in our lives where we've felt anxious about something and then we get to the place that we're anxious about and the environment is just perfectly made to have that subside. And I just have such amazing feelings uh, personally uh, around certain things that happened in my life where organizations have been so thoughtful to, to treat that anxiety or, or to help your mm-hmm. um, dignity through, through tough situations that, I mean, this is a whole new level and how great is it that you guys are doing what you do to help the kids that's just, yeah, just painted an amazing picture. Um, And we're so fortunate to have had the hindsight that comes from all of the centers that have gone before us, you know, in the planning phases for this, the the leadership group visited dozens of centers, um, you know, not only in Canada, but in the U S and abroad there, you know, all of the research was done and literally, you know, um, every square inch of this space was built with intention. Um, and I would say, you know, if anyone that's, you know, listening wants to familiarize themselves with it, there is, if you go to our website, at the very bottom of the homepage there, it says, take a walk with us. There's a virtual tour of the center. And it really, it, it will help um, people understand how very purposeful um, this space really is and why it's so important that we have it um, because it's how we build courage for children is to, put them in a place that makes them feel safe. Yeah. We'll make sure that gets posted in the, in the show notes. Um, so people can check out your organization and all the, um, the stuff that we've been talking about and you've been referencing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, um, one of the things that we do in the show is, is talk about the organizations, but, but you can't really talk about organizations without talking about the people. And so, Mm -hmm. I'm so curious because these organizations need great leaders. You can see the difference um, so greatly on when an organization's led by a passionate, capable leader, which in the few minutes we've been talking, I can definitely tell that's the case with you. Why did you choose this organization, this, this cause? I, like we can, I know it's, it's such an important cause. We've covered that for sure what made you think, what inspired you? It's a great question. And it's an, a, a kind of a funny answer, actually. But I would say that the real answer is that the cause chose me in a lot of ways. Um, my background is has nothing to do with child protection. I worked in sales, marketing, business development for many years, um, a lot of different sort of varying roles. And then what actually when it came to be, it was when the capital campaign was launching, um, you know, the, the, the fellow that was running that uh, local businessman had called me up. I used to work for him many years ago and said, you know, I need someone to lead this project. And so when I originally signed on, I really only signed on for the campaign phase. I thought, yeah, I could do that. I can bring your partners together and, um, and work to sort of lead the community to understand what this is. And, 
I, I actually would say my 12 year old at the time convinced me it was worth doing. I had a great job. I was actually working for the government, you know, all the things you're supposed to want as a grown up pension and all those things. Um, and I remember driving down the road with her and I said, you know, mom, you know, mommy has this really hard choice to make. And she says, well, what's the choice? And I said, well, you know, I have a really great job. It's, it pays well. And, you know, has good benefits, which would mean nothing to her. But I said, you know, it's not that exciting. I said, but I've been offered a job to help build a place that will protect kids um, who've been through troubling things. And she's, she was looking out the window and she said, mommy, I, I don't think that's a hard choice at all. I, I think that's a really easy choice. Um, the mouths of babes, right? So um, I, you know, I followed that and, and came on to do the campaign. And then when it came to the transition between the early phase and actually coming into the space to lead the project into its operational existence, uh, I really honestly just felt like we weren't finished building it. And we, we'll be on this journey for a long time. This is hard, you know, leading agencies down um, paths of big changes, you know, that's a constant evolutionary process. But ultimately, I felt so compelled by the content and I still cry on almost every tour we go on, you know, it's, this is really dark stuff sometimes, but the reason why I go home every day, knowing that I'm coming back the next is because every day I know we've made a change that benefits someone for the better. And I think that will be continually true for quite some time. So, you know, I, I, I still look back like five years ago. And if you told me this is where I would be, I would not have believed you. I would have probably been like, what, <laughs> but um, I think it's exactly where I'm supposed to be now. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way. The team that works in this environment is also dedicated to this change. And I think that the, the really big work we have is to continue to, to bring the community along with us and, and, um, help them feel connected to the, to the cause and, and to how they can help and, you know, those pieces. So, yeah, I'm incredibly passionate about this work, um, but it really took me by surprise when I came on, I really thought I was just coming to lead a campaign and um, ended up not being able to, to walk away because it's work that needs to be done and um, feels like it's where I need to be. Yeah. The passion shows. Um, and isn't it amazing how insightful our young ones are? I, I've asked my daughter some important questions with no expectations of, of uh, a response that was going to be moving the first time I did it. And she gave me just the simplest, most leveling answer. Like it, it just, it really leveled me. I was like, wow. Yeah, you see the world in a very clear way without all the excuses that we as grownups can make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when she said it in the car and I think, you know, it was funny because at the time, you know, my husband had been like, well, you know, maybe it's more practical to stay where you are. And my daughter was like, if you could go change the world, why wouldn't you? <laughs> so, um, and it does feel a little bit like we're changing the world here one child at a time. So I think that's, um, that's come true for us every day. And there are definitely days of extreme frustration because just because we're here doesn't mean we get to change the system overnight. We don't get to change the system overnight. And there's lots of frustrating things still, and, and there will be for some time, but the, the wins outweigh the frustrations, you know, when we see little ones that come in and, um, you know, they come in and they want to see the police again. That just happened. We had a little one that said, can I see my police again? Mm -hmm. And the police will tell you that's never happened before. That's not, that's not the way it's gone. And this is such a, a beautiful thing to be able to create that kind of sense of security where they, they're quite happy to come back and, you know, for whatever's next, which is pretty profound. How can 
um, your community, our community, uh, help change the world with you? What can they do? You know, I think there's lots of ways. One of the things we always ask people is, you know, visit the website for sure. I think it's, we want people, there is a, a drop down on there for education and resources. One of the things we want the community to do is to learn what their um, responsibility is, um, particularly during these times of COVID, you know, if lockdowns come back, those types of things. You know, if you have concerns about families, like understand your duty to report, you know, follow your gut. You know, if your gut is telling you something's off, um, better to listen than not, I think is, you know, it's a huge part of it. Um, you know, we obviously we are always grateful for support from our donors and the community that has the capacity to support. One of the biggest things people can do is become a monthly donor, you know, $5 a month, it's one Starbucks, but all of a sudden, if you have an army of people who are donating $5 a month, that creates sustainable future for not-for-profits. Um, I think a lot of times everyday donors get um, intimidated by the $20,000 checks and the $10,000 checks that, that get posted in the media. Um, that's not the reality. You know, those are amazing and they're windfalls when they come and we're always so grateful, but we're equally grateful to every person that's making that $5 donation or buying the raffle ticket when they're up. You know, those are, that's sustainable fundraising. That's how we, that's how we prove to the government that we'll still be here next year and they can send the grant. It builds strength, right? So um, I think that would always be my invitation is don't, you know, do what you can, um, whatever your charity is, whether it's mine or this one or somebody else's. Um, I think it's important as a community that we're all giving back to the extent that we can, whether it's through our time, our finances, our skills, like some people it's, you know, it's, it's not financial. Sometimes it's, Hey, I'm really good at this. Can, is, does that help you in any way? Charities are often looking for people that can help with their website backend. So we don't have to pay for it or, you know, um, there's just so many examples. I think there's great ways. And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, tapping into, to what does your life look like and what do you have to offer? And, and, uh, there is a charity out there that needs it, whatever it is. Um, we're out here and, and you were so grateful for those. And just yesterday I had someone reach out to me that offered us something that we couldn't use. And I sent them on to another charity. I said, you know who I know could absolutely use this mm -hmm. call this person. Um, it's a network of not-for-profit and we, we have, you know, we, we need to look out for each other because none of us can hold the community up without each other. Um, and I think that became really obvious during COVID when all of a sudden, um, if you had taken all the not-for-profits in this community that serve our homeless, um, serve the mental health, uh, you know, serve children, all, if you took it all away, this community would have fallen apart. Um, so I think it's just something to remind people that if you have the ability to give in whatever capacity that is, um, it's meaningful. Ginny, as you hopefully learn more about us at the Community of Big Hearts, we're the other side of that equation. We're a network mm -hmm. of businesses and community members that were huge advocates for skills-based volunteering, um, donating mm -hmm. their time with their skills to leverage their giving to organizations that need those skills. Um, so yeah. we're, we're building an app um, that's going to help businesses do just that um, and marry well, them amazing. with the charities that, that need those skills. So we're, we're uh, back half of this year. We'll hopefully have some good news and have some conversations with you around how uh, our community can help you. Uh, I think that's amazing because it does come up and people don't know where to ask. Right. So, yeah. and I do think that, you know, it is helpful when we don't have to spend um, the funds on certain things. Those are funds that protect kids or whatever your charity might do. There's, 
money is better spent elsewhere if you can find someone that can help. Yep. Uh, our last question, Ginny, uh, which you know is coming, uh, but you weren't fully prepared for. So um, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Um, I, when you gave me the heads up on this one question, um, you know, my initial response was when you work a not-for-profit, you're held up by kindness. So it's a hard one, but so instead of maybe the kindest thing, I'm going to go with the most recent because I just very recently had um, a beautiful little random act of kindness that caught me off guard. I was I went to the Starbucks drive-through um, last week and I was having a horrible day um, because because of this work. We had a tough day here, uh, a tough file. It was a just a rough it was just a rough one. And I was heading out to a meeting. So I stopped at Starbucks and the, the girl at the drive-thru said, how's your day going? And I said, do you want the real answer or one that will make you feel better? <laughs> she said, no, give me the truth. I said, I'm actually having a really awful day, but I'm looking forward to this coffee. And I pulled up, she goes, why is your day so bad? I said, oh, it's just, you know, work and life. And sometimes everything just feels like a lot. And uh, she says, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I said, well, you know, just is what it is. Be nice to your mom when you go home tonight. <laughs> She handed me my coffee and on my coffee, it said, I don't know, I don't know anything about you, but I know you deserve a brighter day. Huh. And I thought that was pretty amazing. I may or may not have burst into tears on my car because I was having <laughs> a bit of a day, but at the same time, I thought, you know what, it, again, it's, it's the small moments of kindness, I think, that stand out to people on the, on the everyday right now, particularly because, you know, we're all hiding behind masks. And, you know, someone just said to me the other day, I miss smiling at strangers in the grocery store. Mm. And I think that's what our community are. Oh, you're frozen. Jenny? The whole community is feeling is that sort of skin and kindness going That was a good time. You broke up there. We lost you for about uh, 10 seconds. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so I was just saying, you know, it's, it's much like I was just saying, if you have the ability to do something kind, now is probably a good time. I think the world needs it a little bit. And it's the little things that make the biggest impact for people. Great, great example you shared. Thank you for, um, I just love ending it on, on a bright, kind note. Um, Ginny Becker from Child Advocacy Center Kelowna is really impacting the darkest parts of our community and changing the world. Thank you for doing what you do and looking forward to talking to you next time. Thank you so much, Stu. I like to end it bright too. So if I can leave it with this, um, though the subject matter that we got into today is a little bit heavy. Um, I end every tour here by reminding people that just by tuning in and just by listening, um, you are part of the change. By, by following your instinct to be interested and learn and educate yourself, that's the change and change is positive. Thank you so much for joining us on this Community Spotlight. If you're a volunteer or leader who knows of someone or is someone contributing in your community, we want to hear from you. Go to communityofbighearts.com and click the Nominate tab and let us know who they or you are. We look forward to speaking with you. Thank you again for tuning into the Community of Big Hearts.